morning, people of the internet. You're listening to Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, a podcast where we discuss the movie Gross Point Blank one minute at a time. I am your co-host, Hugh David. And I'm your other co-host, Deb. And on this episode, we are going to be watching Minute 44 and telling you all about it. Joining us today, and has been, has been all week on these episodes, we have John Straw of the Late Lamented Super Candid podcast. How are you, John? I'm doing great. I, I'm very excited to talk about John Cusack blowing Bruce Willis's head off in this minute. <laughs> okay, so this let's talk about what this podcast is all about this particular episode. Minute 44, we are in the opening salvos of the first, well, second major gunfight of the film. We haven't actually had, at this point, we're quite a way into the film. And anyone who walked in thinking it was going to be an action movie or saw the opening 20 minutes and thought this was going to be, it's been a long while. This film has been a, 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 a going home comedy and a rom-com and a few other things along the way. Now we're literally back with all guns blazing. Yes. I think that this this one, it sets the tone for the large shootout later in the film. Mm -hmm. And it really, you know, it's ironic that in this sequence, there's no casualties. All we (laughs) we have some property damage, but uh, I think we, you know, the opening scene, we have lots of people get shot by between uh, the biker, the bicyclist and all the people that grocer shoots uh, but here, you know, this is a completely bloodless uh, engagement. Yeah, which is interesting because when we went back and all looked at the fourth draft script version, that was not the case. So bizarrely, yes, I think you said you said poor Carl uh, was blown away in the exchange. Yeah, so apparently in the originals, in the in the version that we have been able to get hold of, which is the fourth draft. So uh, after Cusack and his production buddies have rewritten it, but before shooting, um, <clears throat> this scene. First of all, this scene happens at night. Second of all, uh, the game, the 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 the, the, um, the video game. Uh, uh, cabinet game is not Doom 2. It's actually Mortal Kombat. Thirdly, there are two separate characters. There is a random skateboarder with his ears plugged filled with a Walkman playing Mortal Kombat, which seems perfectly appropriate to the time and place. And then we have Carl, who's behind the counter, who's the uh, the, the, the guy working in the store, as is in the film. Now, in the film, they, compl- they collapse these two into one character. And so Carl's the one playing the video game because he's that bored. We've lost yeah i think the um the script as written was quite a bit more graphic in in a way that probably wasn't beneficial for the show if i'm honest like i i feel like if we'd had that level of violence in this film that it would have changed the tone of the film overall right yeah yeah i mean but it also shows you i think something interesting about what they were going for I think I think it says something about the idea that they perceive this in a like full-on action movie mode, rather than yeah. being comic action movie mode, if that was, or comedy action movie mode. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's. It, I mean, it. It's a little bit harsher even than like Beverly Hills Cop, which is the only one that I can think of that's towing that like 
violence comedy maybe lethal weapon as well the violence comedy line where like actually fairly nasty things happen but overall the tone stays quite light and ultimately this this film veers much more to the lighter side than either of those and i think i think this is one of those scenes where it could have been flipped onto the other side of that line i find it really interesting i not thought about beverly hills cop in relation to this because i absolutely adore Beverly Hills Cop and saw it in the cinema uh, and wore out VHSs of it. But I just suddenly, yeah, you know what? The, the thing about one of the things that surprised me about Beverly Hills Cop as well when I went in to see it was like the way, again, it moved from like in the opening scene, it goes from comedy very fast into full blown action. And the action is played for laughs in terms of the music, but then as, as the destruction increases and more cars get destroyed and the truck goes out of control you actually feel slightly like, oh, this is not so funny anymore. And then you get the brutality. Uh, well, hey, Detroit again. Whoa, what do you know? You get the, the brutality of what happens to his friend and the way that's shot and the starkness. And then we move to Beverly Hills and then it's all the sunshine and, and different. And again, the comedy is the essence of it. And it's not, it takes quite a while before we get a full on, the return to the sense of the, the start of the film, like the action sequence at the end of Beverly Hills Cop is still one of my all time favorite action scenes. I think it's incredibly well put together, but part of what makes it a great scene is you don't anticipate that the film is going to go down this route. And yeah. when it does, it doesn't like play it. Yeah. There's laughs in it, but they're not playing it for laughs. Do you see that? If you see what I mean? And I, whereas here it's like, actually, I think that's what they wanted. <laughs> in the script yeah. but actually what we've got instead is a deliberate choice to make it funny because actually you know what I've seen so many of these scenes over the years even before I'd seen the, this film and I used to actually really enjoy this scene and actually while watching it get again for the film I've realised what a parody it really is like the, fra- the staging and where everyone is and the way they're shooting and despite the attempt to kind of make it relatively uh, um, really well. Realistic's not the right word, but you know, there's there's a sense of reloading ammunition, things that get destroyed get properly destroyed, it's, and they hit hit you. It's very Hollywood, right? At no yeah. point in this yeah. sequence, yeah. as shot, do you feel like that kid is in any danger? Whatsoever? Yes, exactly. Yes, it, and ironically, because I don't, we don't really feel that Martin is in any danger either. Uh, right. You yeah. Know, we you know we obviously. You know, it's only halfway through the film, so we know the main character is not going to be killed. Yeah, and but it, it's interesting the way that it's framed is Benny Urquidez. You know, Felix does not. You, there's no good reason why he shouldn't be killing Martin. You know, at that range, you know, you and in yep. I was you know scrubbing through it, you can see items on the shelves literally to Martin's left and right are being hit. But Martin himself, you know, in between those two is completely fine. Yeah. Uh, so it makes me wonder is, you know, the, you know, if you want to put a, a plot, a plot explanation on it, is the bomb the real thing the whole time? Is like, is the, the, mm. the Mac 10s, are they just a distraction to let him plant the bomb? <laughs> oh, wow. And also, is 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 the whole is is the bomb more? In this case, it really has to be a gag because does he even have time to plant it? Yes. Yeah, like yeah. it's just so loose. Well, although you know. I did, when I was just before the episode we recorded, I was listening to it, and at about twenty eight seconds into this minute, you can hear the microwave being programmed. 
I had never noticed that before. But you can, as Martin is reloading, yeah, you can hear the buttons on the microwave. Oh, yeah, wow. it's I mean, it's it's the world's fastest microwave programming. Like you are <laughs> intimately familiar with that make and model. Yes. But, uh, it's, it, yeah. Maybe maybe that's the that's the scene that we actually missed is Felix coming in earlier to microwave a burrito <laughs> in order to familiarize himself. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. That That's why Martin was was out making the phone call to a psychiatrist in the, in the yes. previous scene. Felix yeah. got his yeah. lunch. <laughs> Yeah. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I'm trying to find. It's, it, this has intrigued me as long for for years, and but also because we've been doing this podcast, I've been trying to find out what's the earliest example of the 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 um, grocery store shootout, and I can't find it. But at least it's interesting to note that the website tvtropes.org does actually have grocery store as a, like it's an option in their list of tropes uh oh also, yes yeah they also list a whole bunch of related things to um this scene including what they call guns akimbo which is where you yeah, stand yeah. two legs apart uh so they've got that they've got um they've got the shootout uh yeah but it, it's yeah. just it's a it, it is i mean the, the ones i always remember are the first four steven seagal's because each and every one of them has one. Yeah. <laughs> like it's literally part of the formula. Once he does one in um, under Andrew Davis in um, uh, Nico, the, from then on, every single film has one. I think the most ludicrous one is the next one, which was um, uh, above. No, it's not above the law. It's uh, uh, out. Shoot. I can't remember. It's all these three. They're all three names. Oh, yeah. yeah. Out for Justice, I believe. Yeah, that's the fourth one. Again. I got out for Justice. So good. So good. <laughs> the, 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 the pool hall fight in that is insane. Uh, no, there's yeah, two before. It's the one where he met his wife, Kelly Brock- Broccoli. Anyway, that one has one of the most ludicrous, over-the-top grocery store action scenes you will ever see. But then, you know, it is such a trope. And, like, you know, Alien Nation, the movie had one. And it just becomes this thing and you kind of go, well, when and why was it? I suspect it's probably going to go back to a film I haven't seen that I understand sets a lot of the standards for destruction in cop-related movies, and that's Freebie and the Bean, which I've never seen. But my understanding is that sets a whole new level because even Dirty Harry doesn't like, you don't get like the whole store shot out, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm really glad you you pointed out Bruce Willis's decapitation because <laughs> over my time of loving this film, I have subjected a lot of people to this film. <laughs> and particularly in my high school years, everybody was loving it. And every single time in this scene, everyone would stop and say, how could they do that to that Reservoir Dogs cutout? Because we were all big Reservoir Dogs fans. And any one of us would have loved to have had that cardboard cut out in our house. And, and yeah, it just gets blown apart in this scene well, in just such it, an unnecessary gratuitous way. Sorry. Yeah. It, yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's a deliberate choice that it's Bruce Willis's head and not mm-hmm. Sam, Samuel Jackson, John Travolta and Uma Thurman all escape unscathed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So 
there was a dis- yeah, at some point there was a discussion on set <laughs> whose head <laughs> it gets blown off. Someone in control of squibs had a bone to pick. Is is yes. what I think is going on. There. Which I mean, I guess you know, if you think about it, if you think of uh, people in charge of squibs and people who have met Bruce Willis in the mid '90s, there's probably a, a large overlap there, <laughs> uh, given his film career. <laughs> Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. And and of course, this is, you know, one of uh, John Cusack's future co-stars in in his, uh, let's call him his lesser films of the mid, you know, 2010s. I think it's The Prince he made with Bruce Willis, uh, which I have not seen. Uh, no, does not I haven't seen that. Good. Yeah. Okay. And of course, he will, he isn't he, doesn't he end up with Jackson in um, 14... 14- something or other the Stephen King film yes 1408 uh one of one of my uh I love I enjoy that as a, a later John Cusack I thought uh was quite quite fun as a kind of a haunted house type story mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. think uh it fit well you know most of what he's doing is reacting to various special effects uh, but I think it fits well with him as the the skeptic who ends up in a real haunted house I mean, I think <clears throat> I have to. I have to say, I do think that generally, while we haven't got had as many great Stephen King adaptations as we had in the nineties, I do feel like the general quality of them is higher than a certain period of the eighties, shall we say? Um, yes. You know what I mean? I, it's like I still, if I hear if someone's made a, a King movie, I'm still like, yeah, I'll go see it. Still, I I didn't see uh, Cusack's other King adaptation, Cell. Uh, no, I haven't seen that yet. That's still on my list. Um, but because it's Cusack and it's King, I will watch it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. But yeah, something so, interesting in the, in the TV tropes, they point out something very interesting, apart from the microwave misuse trope, which is quite funny, uh-huh. um, in which they explicitly say, Felix puts a potato-sized lump of plastic explosive in a microwave. Um, but they mention the fact, in terms of literal names... Uh, they point out that Grocer, the man, wants yes. to unionize the industry and turn everybody into products, the same sort of products. And of course, in the grocery store shootout, what we see is all of that being trashed. Lovely, yes. lovely little bit of subtext right there, particularly given the way all the stuff that individual you know it's that old joke about american capitalism you know we want we want every different every you know it'll promote individualism and uh, uh everything will be different and you end up with all the same sort of products just different yes. colors you know and martin gets covered in that stuff as he's being as he's leaping around the place um i i was interested as he as he does that great little slide yeah. uh towards the microwave he's right by this wall of Duracell batteries, which <laughs> made me think about his conversation with Dr. Oatman about the, yes. you know, the, their competing brand, which I don't think they ever, maybe because they had a deal with Duracell, they couldn't name the yeah. Energizer Bunny. At the yeah, you're right. That's film. a good point. They, oh, did, they deliberately don't yeah. call it that. That's they just say the bunny, yeah, battery, yeah. battery bunny, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I always. Do you know what we talked about that in the earlier episodes? And we didn't even come up with that, did we, Dev? Like the fact that it's not actually named the way it should be. Oh, I think I may have mentioned it. It oh, did yeah, always maybe. strike me as odd at the time. It like even when I was first watching it, I was like, 
Battery Bunny. Like, and I just assumed they were just avoiding all brands. I had not noticed that there's a giant ass rack of Duracell right. batteries mm. behind Martin Blank across from the. Yeah, the, and, I, uh, and I'm sure Duracell would not be happy to uh, to have their competitor name dropped. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Which it's interesting. I believe in the script you mentioned that this was a 7-Eleven. Yes, and, but it's in the film. It's become an Altamart, uh, yes. which is another another intri- maybe because it's destroyed completely at the end. But you know, it's obviously full of real brands. But for mm. whatever reason, in the legal negotiations, they couldn't mm. call it an, a, the brand name store that you know it mm. would, everybody would know. You have to make up an Altamart, which yeah. sounds like the the convenience store that people in some sort of science fiction dystopia would shop at. <laughs> yeah, that's a good I mean, point. It feels like, you know, 7-Eleven seven were 100% on board right up until they found out that the store got blown up and then they're like, yeah, yeah you can't do this with a 7-Eleven. That, that's what it <laughs> yeah, feels that like sounds, to me. That, considering it's the it, 90s, that sounds quite fair because I imagine they don't particularly want anyone actually going, walking in and going, right, we're going to have a go at this. Stick it in the microwave, <laughs> you know. <laughs> This was Minute 44 of the Gross Point Blank podcast, Debbie Radio 79.5 FM, featuring your hosts, co-writers, and co-producers, myself, Dev Sodiger, and my buddy, Hugh David. Today's guest was John Straw of the Super Candid Podcast, as well as several Discord servers and a bunch of, hope- well, hopefully a new podcast coming up as well. John, where can people find you online at the moment before your new cast debuts? Uh, so a good place is I, I hang out on the Movies by Minute Facebook group uh, and you know provide some encouragement and you know learn some lessons about the Movies by Minute podcasting genre. So that's a great place uh, to find me in the comments. Mm-hmm. fantastic folks uh, great you can find us wherever you're listening to us right now as well as any other good podcast players that you can access also you can watch us on YouTube you can follow us on X aka Twitter as well as Spotify in all cases our handle is Debbie Radio aka D-E-B-I Radio we also go to our website DebbieRadio.com once again D-E-B-I Radio and if you want to talk with us about this film or films in general or whatever else, you can join us on our listeners group on Facebook. And that is Debbie Radio 79.5 FM Fan Club. Sure was clear that all of this was new. Concentrating hard like a little girl smoking for the first time. It wasn't a moment. It was a feeling.